0: Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Shoulder to Shoulder podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, story by story. We are dipping into the ranks of our drum corps today from the 3252. Joining us is going to be Jose Rendon, who is also known as Sol Libre, also known as Sol Drum. This Expo original was the original drum co-director of the 3252 and is now playing a role as the Black and Gold Vinyl Club admin. So super excited to have him joining us during the interview portion of the show. To be frank, the stories told on this show of late have been somewhat dark, and to hear the story of Jose, someone who has a very uplifting and inspirational story, it's going to be a refreshing alternative from what we have heard of late from the supporter community, so very excited to dive into that interview later in the show. But of course, joining me as always, Messieurs Christian Aparicio and Christopher Signs, gentlemen. Good evening, welcome. How are we doing? Good evening,
1: doing well. So reminder to everyone out there, follow and review at LAFCS2S Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Apple Pod, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, whatever you guys listen to. Make sure to follow. But yeah, we're doing well, Jonathan. How about you, Chris?
2: Everything's good, guys. Everything's good. You know, it's another good week. MLS is finally back, guys. We're second weekend of the season going on our third week, and it's great time. Great time to be a fan.
0: Blessed to have football in our lives once again. So why don't we just go ahead and dive into the match here. Prior to the game, there was an announcement from LAFC that was completely off my radar that really just showed up via a PR announcement I got while I was already at the stadium helping distribute those Mo shirts. LAFC have made official the signing of Alvaro K. Sada, local boy from Lancaster. He was our third round pick in the MLS Superdraft, 68th overall. What do you guys think of this new defender slash midfielder joining the squad?
1: A little surprised. I mean, he wasn't on our radar, but obviously we haven't had access to the new Nectar Performance Center during media days at all. So we're not able to scope out who's been training. Interesting pick. I think our midfield is pretty deep. Uh, Defensively also, I thought we're pretty deep, but we need reinforcements. We already know that early on in the season, we already have a lot of our forwards down, and this could happen on any of our lines, midfielder, defense. So good to have some reinforcements, and we'll see if he sticks with LAFC or if he's going to be one of those signings that ends up going to, to Las Vegas to get some minutes.
2: You know, I think that it also could be because we had, uh, saw that Tristan Blackman had showed up on the injury list, and it was just a matter of having the depth and available personnel given whatever scenario came out with Seattle. So I, I think that it's interesting. It's definitely cool to have a local boy again. And I wish him the best of luck. And but I, I don't expect to see much of him, at least not right away. You know, if everyone's healthy too. It's it's we ha- we do have a very deep depth chart.
0: Just celebrated his 21st birthday earlier in the month or earlier last month. Born in Granada Hills from Lancaster, went to UC Irvine, played in 21 games throughout the course of his last season and over the course of 56 games throughout his time at UC Irvine, netted 20 game starts, five goals, six assists and about 1600 minutes and change at UCI has signed all the way through the 2024 season. So I agree with you. I think this was a depth piece going into the game that they absolutely needed. Clearly someone who's Las Vegas bound. So why don't we go ahead and dive into the game? Obviously, we tweeted it out. We knew that the injury card for this game was formidable. We were going to be without a plethora of players, who were out to various injuries, COVID protocols, you name it. So, prior to even kicking off the ball, boys, what did you think of the starting 11? Christian, you're our tactics genius. What did you think of what was rumored to be a 4 4 2 and then really ended up being a 4 4 3 with just a midfielder up front?
1: You know, it was interesting. I know the graphics short of 4 4 2, Sifu was kind of a false number nine slash a. Fourth midfielder that ended up looking like a diamond, which was kind of old school with two forwards at times. It was an intriguing game for watching tactical matchup between Bob and Schmetzer. Bob doesn't get the opportunity because of lack of talent to have to make these kinds of tactical moves. I think maybe some of the our fans want to see this with Rossi and Vela up top in this kind of split two-man forward approach. But I thought that we did well. We controlled the midfield, which is why I think we were able to get a draw. And we'll talk more about that. But I thought we started the game off really, really well, very aggressive on the front foot. Apoko was causing some confusion. And I mean, about 80, 90 seconds in, we got a free kick right outside the box that Atuesta took advantage of. And I thought that Atuesta was masterclass along with Latif. Kay helped defensively. At times, but we could talk more about that later. I think the the free kick, going back to that, Atuesta was very, very astute with the approach to the kick, making it look like he was going to have a hard kick to the far side of the goal or over the wall, but he went under. There'll be questions of the keeper and the defense for jumping and also for the keeper not having someone that lay down behind, which has become more conventional. And Atuesta took advantage of that. And one thing that I noticed right away was that celebration with the ball going into the jersey. And it seems like him and his wife are expecting a child. So big ups to, to Atuesta. And hopefully we get confirmation that he's going to be staying for at least another full season.
2: Yeah, I thought that the the match was actually really impressive. I definitely liked seeing a different formation than what we are normally seeing, because I do think that there has been a a stigma about Bob and that he's going to stick to his guns and that he's adamant about his 4-3-3, that he doesn't make any changes. And so I liked just the, even the idea that we have other options in our arsenal. I think having Sifu, and I think it was uh, Tyler uh, Twelman, right, that was the announcer um, for the match on broadcast, he had talked about how Sifu was playing like a true nine and that he was kind of playing in that midfield role, but then kind of also playing up front as an attacker. And it was interesting to see that type of dynamic. He
1: he said he was playing more like a number 10. Like it was kind of a creative midfielder.
2: You're right. Um, I'm sorry. Number
1: 10. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But he was, and he was coming up to pick up the ball and playmaking and it was different. It was different role, something we're not used to. I thought it was interesting as the game wore on. Uh, you could see Corey Baird was in 100%. So he just didn't look as dynamic. And whenever we got into the the final third of the of the the pitch, we lost rhythm, momentum. I think there was just a lack of confidence at times with our forwards, which was Corey Baird and Apoku, and don't have that reference point of Vela or Rossi to kind of just lean on to go and make a play happen. So you could see that offensively we didn't necessarily cause as many issues. But possession-wise and defensively, we also didn't allow them to score. So in the end, the scoreline was fair, in my opinion. They got maybe one or two chances, and we weren't quick enough on the rebound in the second half when they scored. But overall, defensively, I was pretty happy. Murillo was a wall back there. Segura, they gave us a lot. And I was actually impressed with Marco Farfan. He impressed me because he's left-footed playing on the right side, and he held Seattle at bay with a wing back overloaded five-person midfield at times, and re Diaz and Bruin up top. It was it was not an easy task, and being able to keep him at one goal without being an offensive threat for most of the game was uh, an impressive job by our defense.
0: I got to take in the game from the newly released vaccinated section of the 3252, being so privileged as uh, to have had both vaccinations and been two weeks clear of that. I was permitted to sit in the vaccinated section, which was really cool. We had Jaime Camille sitting up front there in the vaccinated section next to Julio. It was very unique to have so many different 3252 SGs all sort of intermingled. You know, I got Expos in front of me. I had Zacker right behind me, Lucky's to one side of me. There was very familial experience having all those different SGs intermingling in one section of the stadium. It was just refreshing to have That North End-like experience, once again, where we were shoulder to shoulder. We got interviewed by CNN, Zachar and I, before the game, talking about what it was going to be like to be back in a stadium and standing next to a fan. And to be honest, I didn't really know what it was going to feel like. The experience was overwhelmingly positive to be back. And I can only hopefully encourage everyone to use whatever means necessary to get your vaccinations so that hopefully we can continue to increase that capacity within the stadium. Now, obviously, putting in work throughout the course of the game, you don't pick up on every little nuance, but some things certainly stuck out to me. I loved what our back line did. I thought our back line was sensational. Murillo was a beast. Pablo made, once again, some great saves, but his distribution was poor, and the fact that Murillo was taking his free kicks for him was something that I found very alarming that we have so little trust in Pablo's ability to distribute with his feet, that we're reaching out to our back line in order to bring those balls forward. I definitely think that's something that needs to change going forward. And speaking of distribution, our corners and our crosses were woeful in this game. We created a lot of corner opportunities. And there were multiple times in which guys were at the outside of the box or inside the box. We're not even talking like, you know, 2020 Galaxy just firing in corners from from super far out. These were through balls and balls that should have been crossed in much more effectively. And I think it was getting very frustrating for some of the people around me that our corners were nothing like what we see when Vela's out there. Now, obviously, (laughs) Vela's Vela. He's Vela for a reason. But it was disappointing for me, at least, and for many of the people around me what we saw in the terms of distribution, both from keeper coming forward and from those crosses coming in, I thought we created many more opportunities than we were able to capitalize on in this game. And frankly, were it not for a very, very cheeky goal from Atuesta and a beautiful celebration from him as well, too. Congratulations to him. Then, you know, we might be looking at a one nil defeat. And despite the fact that our defense played so well, We had that one goal that squeaked in that was almost stopped. And, you know, the the play that led up to it was pretty frustrating with Kay attempting to do the backheel nutmeg that ultimately did not work. Turns over possession and that turnover and possession directly led to that goal. I think that's just frustrating for me. To see Kay attempt to do a backheel nutmeg in the midfield, it just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And then, yeah, the distribution on those crosses was really pretty frustrating. We were taking a lot of shots from weird places as well. Too, I think almost half of our shots were outside the box, which is the most anti-Bob Bradley thing I've ever seen. But you know, when your front line is made of mostly midfielders, I guess that's what you get. Despite all of those things and and so many people out, we still managed to squeak a point out of the game, and I guess that's something to be happy about. And there were certainly some players that performed well on the day. I think certainly Mario at the top of that list for me. A Twesto dominant throughout the midfield he had a beautiful game just disappointing that we weren't able to capitalize on it more
1: I think you bring up some good points for Pablo in the distribution I agree with you at least when the ball gets passed back to him I feel like he's doing like a rookie quarterback meeting like he kind of looks at the first option, second option real quick, and then he just boots it. And I prefer that. If he doesn't feel comfortable yet, I prefer the ball being kicked up. On goal kicks, that is a little concerning, and the only thing I can think of is there might be some sort of little lingering thing on the quad or a hamstring where he doesn't feel like he can put full power and doesn't want to tweak it further in order to be able to dive in a good way. I know that in the past, that's been an experience I've had to have to kick for a goalie, for that reason, is something that's lingering. Your crosses on corners. What was interesting was that Atuesta, the first half was kicking the corners, and he wasn't doing a bad job. And in fact, the would he almost scored in the first half. And for whatever reason, he stopped taking them. And then Bryce Duke took them in the second half when he came on, which were not really good at all. But the only thing I can think of a twice as starting to do that is because it was a defensively tactical thing. So maybe he didn't want to be all the way in the corner in case the ball was turned over and turned into a counterattack because they kind of break out into that five midfield thing. That was my thought on that. And I saw it and I was frustrated, but I was like, all right, maybe we're playing it safe tactically to not give up another goal or give up a goal in general on a counterattack. And then the last thing I would say, shots from outside, you're right, midfielders, We also didn't have an offensive threat that was reliable or that the defense would back away from. So it it had to become a shot of some sort. And with Sifu, I don't mind. I think he has one of the best long-range shots in the league. Same with Atuesta. So it was the only weapons we had on the night or on the afternoon. So it, it made sense.
0: Yeah, all in all, a good showing from a number of people that were stretched into roles or minutes that they are not accustomed to. We got to see a lot more of Opoku in these last couple games. I think he's very direct in the attacking runs that he makes. And I think sometimes he has an ability to go wide and then come back in. And that might open up some space for him that just wasn't happening in the course of these games. Raheem Edwards, another person that, you know, to me, really struggled to just maintain possession I think I remember hearing a statistic in the pod fam of him having 13 possessions and six unforced giveaways. Yeah, that's just not going to work. So, you know, look, he's forced into a role and a timing in which he's probably not ready for. And I don't want to stymie any kind of development or potential there based on one game where he was thrust into a role that he was not equipped for. But look, again, on the day, Seattle's a team that is very difficult. They're a very good team, and we know they were without some pieces as well, too. But still, this is a team that when we're at our best and they're at our best, you know, we've thrown blows back and forth. And to be able to hold them to one goal that's bumbled in over the line, all in all, I'll take it and I'll take the point. I think that was an optimistic goal going into the game to try and take a point away when many people said we would be outmatched.
1: Yep. I think our midfielders don't understand Opoku's runs yet. So once they figure that out, I think we'll be able to find him in the right pockets and the right spaces for him to be effective. Because usually his offensive moves have been him disrupting or taking the ball away. So more to come on that. I don't know if you saw this, this Monday, MLS soccer, props to them, number one power ranking. I do think that... Good choice. Good choice. Well, yeah, no, I just think that they're more fair in terms of the assessment of opponents. Also the assessment of who's playing for the team and the results that they've gotten. ESPN, MLS, number five power ranking for LAFC. I don't mind if, you know, the Galaxy, Columbus, or some of these other teams are above maybe one through three, I thought would have been fair for LAFC. I think quietly LAFC has overperformed in the national eyes, but for us, we know the system here. We know that we have at least two players in each position, and I think this is going to bode well for a long-term season being able to get points like these and get wins when we have our our protagonists on the field. So big ups to MLS soccer, knowing what they're talking about. This is why I listen to extra time at times. I'll let them listen this week because I didn't see that LAFC was going to be talked about. So sorry to guys.
2: Regardless, they could rank us low. You know, those power rankings, they don't really mean anything, right? The, they're speculative and they're opinionated and you know, we all know what LAFC can and can't do and On any given day, LAFC is going to be able to beat every single team in the league. And it's just a matter of executing our game plans. So they could rank us last. Still, you know, at the end of the day, we know what we are. So
0: I did listen to this week's extra time. And the question was raised from their host of, are the Galaxy the best team in the MLS? And the immediate response to it was they're not even the best team in their own city. Now, we don't play in Carson, so perhaps they do need some correction there. But they are not considered the best team in the Southland, let alone in the MLS. So what ESPN is thinking, whether that is just clickbait for them, whether they have their own intentions behind it, more games will have to be played until those power rankings are really meaningful. Speaking of which a game upcoming on the weekend. LAFC traveled down to Houston to take on The Fightin' Candy Corns, as our guest from last week affectionately referred to them as. That will be Saturday at 12.30. And being double-vaxxed, I am privileged enough to be hopping on a plane Friday, and I'm going to bust out some away days in Houston. So if y'all know any great barbecue spots, and yes, I'm using y'all intentionally once again, please let me know where are the spots to go hit up in Houston. But moreover, gentlemen, what are you looking to see out of the match this weekend?
2: I think the biggest indicator is going to be the injury report to see who's playing and who's not who's traveling, and who's staying home. That will give us a better insight as to what our expectations are, but let's just say worst-case scenario, LAFC came out with the same lineup or the same players available that they had in Seattle. I would like to think that LAFC is going to come back to LA with a W and you know, Houston will play as tough. But I think that LAFC has the right formula to get the job done.
1: I expect a win. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sure LAFC gets into the U.S. Open Cup number one. So a win would kind of make the argument points-wise to be one of the top eight teams. And Seattle is a really tough team. And what, what I saw this weekend, the, the resilience, the ideas were there. I think it was a final pass that was missing. But defensively, we were solid. We didn't allow that many chances. And Pablo has... A lot of big saves in him now. I have a little bit more confidence in him. And, you know, I'll take that trade-off distribution over big, big saves and just booting the ball up and letting our players go fight for it up there and causing the turnovers up in the top. That's fine with me. I think if we get at least one, Corey Baird could be healthy or if Rossi or Vela, if one of those three, uh, along with the supporting cast up top, we just need one true striker that can play almost 90 minutes that can cause some issues for their defense. I think we'll be fine.
0: We know that Vela was originally ruled out for a quad injury. Then in the stadium, they got all of our heart rates going by saying that his absence from the game was COVID protocols or well, health and safety protocols, which we all know what that means. But Bob clarified after the game that he missed a test because he was out dealing with some family issues and that none of that mattered because the quad issue was what was going to keep him out of the game anyway. So hopefully he's back in training this week. I have not heard peep about that. We know he and Rossi were both in light training last week. So we can assume that they're at least in light training again this week. So potential for both Vela and Rossi or one of them to be back on the weekend. That is a huge piece as to whether or not LAFC are able to post a dominant performance or not. I think even sans Vela, sans Rossi. You take those two people out of the 11 LAFC are still a better team than Houston. And I still expect a result. I'm just, uh, I know it's a bit rainy down there this weekend. I'm hoping we don't have some crazy sandstorm lightning storm. seems like every time we play Houston, there is some freak weather incident that tends to happen, whether it's here at the bank and the lightning and the rain game, which was one of my favorite moments as a supporter or our last trip down there in which we had some crazy lightning sandstorm rain. So Hopefully, we get to see a good, clean game. I'm going to have a great view for that game. More on that as we recap my experiences next week. But finally, before we dive into the interview portion of the show here, we just wanted to touch on some good work LAFC is doing out there in the community, being a force for good. LAFC teamed up with Kaiser Permanente, the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank, and the Sustainable Economic Enterprises of Los Angeles to distribute groceries, COVID-19 protective equipment, as well as some healthy living educational materials to families facing food insecurity. So fantastic to see LAFC out there helping the needy, trying to distribute healthy food to people who are in need. We know so many of these care packages that are out there tend to contain canned goods, preserved goods, things that we absolutely need in order to sustain people who economically cannot put food on the table for their family. But at the expense of some health decisions there, it's, I thought, really wonderful to just see LAFC making sure that the food they distribute is also health forward as well, too. So hats off to the team for executing that. I thought that was a really, really beautiful thing they did.
1: 427 LAFC day. Remember that, guys.
0: Absolutely. That's two days before. So tomorrow is the
2: three-year anniversary of our first home match at the bank. So it's 429, the day that will live forever.
0: (laughs) Yes, the gold foil. I remember. I still have my gold foil somewhere and my little making history card they gave us from that game. You should also hit up
2: uh, El Bailador when you're in Houston because he lives in Houston now.
0: Oh, speaking of which, what a huge moment for someone in the LAFC community. Remiss not to mention two of our favorite people in the LAFC community having a beautiful moment in their lives. Shout outs to Chris El Bailador and of course the D9U chef himself, Aron Espinosa. Congratulations to both of these men on becoming citizens of these United States of America. Something that all of us hold very near and dear and a privilege I wish could be extended to as many members of the Black and Gold community as possible. It is an esteemed privilege to be part of the angst and the beauty and the frustration, the agony, the joy, and all the things that it means to be an American. And the fact that those two men have worked so hard to pass their citizenship tests, and become legal citizens of the United States of America. Hats off to the two of them. Chris, Aaron, congratulations. You know, welcome. And hopefully, more to come from the LAFC community on that front. But amazing to see that for both of them. Congratulations. Congratulations. USA, USA. Barra 76, uh, two new members, apparently. Right on. Moving on to the interview portion of today's show. Today, we are going to be joined once again by Jose Rendon, who is also known as Soul Drum, who is also known as Soul Libre. Just to remind you, he is an Expo Original, the original drum co director for the 3252, and an admin for the Black and Gold Vinyl Club. You can follow the 3252 Drum Corps at heartbeat of los angeles and our guest today on social media at soul underscore libre señor rendon welcome to shoulder to shoulder podcast
3: what's up everyone good evening thank
2: you for taking the time out man we really appreciate it love what you guys do in the north end and uh, can't wait to hear your story
3: thank you Uh, actually uh, if i may a big uh, shout out to all the drummers from the 3252. they're there every match two hours uh, before the kickoff right a little bit before the supporters go in and so big shout out to all the drummers and to Tony, uh, who was a co-drum director uh, with me the first few years, and uh, to Walter, who's the current uh, drum director, big shout out to all of them.
0: Absolutely. What Walter and the rest of the drum corps do is, I mean, it's exhausting singing for 90 straight minutes. I can only imagine what drumming for 90 straight minutes is. That looks absolutely exhausting, but we're going to get more into your personal experience around drumming in the North End and and your story as it has been intertwined with the Black and Gold community. But let's go ahead and just at first dial it all the way back to when football enters your life, sir, and how did you become acquainted with the beautiful game?
3: Well, my father was a big uh, fan of uh, Chivas Guadalajara, so my uh, earliest memories of are <laughs> of uh, going to my parents to friends' houses to watch the you know, big games, the Chivas-America being the biggest uh, rivalry in the uh, IMX. Back then, it was Primera División. So, uh, my earliest memories are of that end of uh, the '86 World Cup. <laughs> I was in first grade, and I did that in Mexico. I attended first grade in Mexico in my dad's hometown in the city Nayarit. And uh, I remember my earliest memories were of the '86 World Cup. And so, yeah, my love uh, for the beautiful game uh, started through my my father. And uh, getting, you know, together with him on the weekend, maybe time Chivas played. and That's our bond grew.
0: Nayarit, <laughs> man, they make some good tequila there in Nayarit. One of the few provinces outside of Jalisco that makes tequila. That's a beautiful area.
3: Yeah, my bond's from Guadalajara, actually, from the state of Jalisco. So I've been going to Guadalajara ever since before I could even walk. My love for Guadalajara is uh, very, very strong. So
0: when did you transition your life from living in Mexico to living in the United States? And did your football fandom come with you? Uh, did you end up following teams like Chivas USA or what was your fandom like both after you came to the United States and prior to the onset of LAFC?
3: I was actually born here in the city of Los Angeles. I attended preschool right around the corner of from uh, the bank and, and uh, moved around. And uh, I went to first grade in Mexico, we moved to Mexico. And I came back and uh, grew up uh, here in the LA Area and uh, in San Diego Valley. So in Los Angeles, we really didn't have anything. And, the team in Carson, when MLS started, it never really appealed to me. Growing up uh, following Chivas, Guadalajara, when Chivas USA came around, you know, I watched a little bit, and they had some legends come from over there, you know, like Ramos Ramirez and uh, some other players come by. Um, Claudio Suarez, excuse me, to name a few. But I only went to about a handful of Chivas USA games. I never really fell, fell in love with the team or anything like that until I first heard of uh, LESC Brighton. the day they announced it. I was in. So it really fell that home when the, the club began.
0: So let's pause the LAFC and the football talk for just a moment. We've learned how football has entered your life, but I'd like to hear how music entered your life. We know that you're obviously a drummer of some skill. We have seen from your social media presence and obviously your ability in the North End, you're fairly proficient at the art of drumming. So when does music enter your life and when did you decide to take on percussion
3: well music my mom is, is the one who always played music when i was growing up music was always in at the house playing you know love cumbia or, or rancheras or whatever was at the house playing but my early is uh you know i guess the first artist i really fell in love with was michael jackson back you know in the early 80s you know right michael jackson was the biggest thing out, out there and, and i fell in love with you know we we're doing the moonwalk you know we're all kids you know doing oh you know doing all those uh all those dances, but I fell in love with music at an early age, and then La Bamba came out, and it was like, what, you know? <laughs> uh, that just became uh, something that uh, I began following. My parents were in a group called Los Simpáticos de Ritmo, so we'd go see them a few times, and it was like, I want to play music. And I was never grew- good at sports growing up, so through school, uh, those luckily school had um, a band, and, and I didn't even know what to play when I first joined it, and they were like over here so I kind of fell into drumming by accident and I stuck with it (laughs) I played a few other instruments but drumming was you know has always been a big part of my life ever since I began when I was nine years old so I've been playing for quite a while
2: now in the north end what uh, type of drum do you play in the north end I play the snare and how do you guys figure out who's going to play which style of drum and how that whole
3: choreography works out. That actually happened very organically since the moment we began, everybody brought the instrument that they wanted to play and uh, more or less stuck with it. I think a few players have switched, but yeah, for the most part, you know, we all own our own drums that we play, you know, the team didn't buy it for it or anything. It's uh, you know, we, but we all, you know, bring our instrument that we, Play and uh, that's how basically how it happens. Uh, it happened very organically.
1: Can you talk about a little, talk about the early drum circles, drum lines? H- how did that happen? How did that interactions take place? Try to walk us through for someone that doesn't know about those things, as a more recent LAFC fan. Paint that picture for us.
3: Sure. Well, I'll go back a little bit to the last six days. Let's go back to the last six days before the stadium was even built. Everybody, you know, would go and, and we would do rallies and those who had drums will come and bring them. I mean, that's how it, you know really began. And then uh, I think it didn't become official till I think myself and Tony right before the first season began were asked uh, if we we're interested in doing drum directors for the thirty two fifty two drums. And so what Tony and I did was we asked uh, the, the supporter groups if you know they had anybody who was interested in joining the drum line. We had um, a rehearsal before the first match, and you know we began playing. That I mean I remember I went to Seattle the first match and. We had a few of our supporters bring drums, and you know, we've been doing it like that. And then I think a few of the other members from supporter groups, you know, began joining us, and that's how it began. Uh, honestly, it was I go back to saying organically. You know, we asked the supporter groups so if they had a few drummers for the season, and then that became you know the, the original drum line the first season and it began it's been, it's been growing I
1: think lots of so, people w- would be impressed that there was songs with drums already at the beginning of the first season right so how did, can you talk us through whether the drum beats came first the songs how did you coordinate with these supporters to kind of put together some of these chants
3: i think the chats came up by the supporters uh, some of them come from I, it seems a uh, universal chants. <laughs> but other ones that were basically seems like it came from ideas from one person. They just, you know, you tried them out at some of the original rallies and of them stuck. And I mean, I still remember with, uh, we were faithful, you know, we, I still remember when with we had a little expo rally, we were fields you know, our brewery. And I still remember the early days, you know, we were coming up with just kind of like chant, with that chant and jump rally football club. I remember the early days we we're trying it out at like one of the tailgates. And it's been really cool to see some of them, curl to what they, I mean, they become. Yeah, I mean, thinking back to them, they really just began by trying them up out at some of the rallies and the pre-games, and they just had become growing, you know, the away games as well.
0: So we know that you're a member of the Expo Originals. How did that supporters group enter your life? Because we know that you helped work with the Expo Originals in order to coordinate the 1st 3252 drum circle. But you were already a member at that point. So how did LAFC enter your radar? And how did that become joining the Expo Originals?
3: Well, as I mentioned earlier, right, the name, you know, was born and it was going to be an official team. I began following and I just kept looking on social media to see if there was any uh, supporters groups starting up. And I think how Expos originally there, I found them on social media was the name was, I hope I don't get this wrong, was Los Angeles Football Club Supporter Group, something like very, very basic. And then there was you know a vote for the name. And luckily I I voted for Expo. I was one of the, that was the name that I liked the most. And they got picked, Expo Originals. And then there was also, a vote for the logo, and luckily the, the logo that I like the best one up in things place. So it just kept working out, and I met everybody officially at the groundbreaking event. I was I I went up to the guys and said, hey, oh you guys exposed, and I told them I was following the groups and the Facebook, you know, and I got I something with voting and all that, and that's how I became, I met the guys officially, you know, and uh, yeah, all the rallies, I just you know, kept hanging out with the guys, and I joined the Slack, um, and all that stuff, so that's how it began growing. How did you
0: end up becoming the first, and I, I know it was uh, shared with Tony, the co-director of the 3252 Drumline? What was that selection process like, and how did you get chosen to be the co-leader?
3: I was basically asked by uh, Clio, director of uh, Atmosphere, asked myself, and he said if I was interested in uh, co-directing with Tony. And I had met Tony through a few times, and uh, I, was, I was on board and uh, both of us come from completely different backgrounds, but, uh, we, you know, I think we did our best to make it work and, uh, you know, nothing but love and respect for Tony. Un saludo para él. That's uh, I had met uh, Julio. I think uh, I had gone to hang out with him for a couple of uh, Chivas uh, games and that's how I, yeah, it basically happened.
2: So I have a question about the drum line. How many members are part of the drum line and, did, are there members who are part of the drumline that didn't have any previous experience that pretty much had learned once they saw what you guys were doing and they wanted to be a part of it. And so now they're members of the drumline with no previous experience. And if there was someone who saw what the 3252 did and wanted to get involved, what kind of things would they be expected to have to be a participant in? And is there even an opportunity for them to join?
3: Well, We have a very diverse group, various degrees, uh, I feel, of experience. Uh, We have both men and women. We have uh, adults and kids in the group. And like I said, originally it began by us asking any any support groups if they had anybody who was interested in drumming. When the first, I know that the Aztec drummers, they were the first ones, I remember, to test out the acoustics at the stadium. They're from the Cuervos, and I remember the hearing the first time, like <laughs> the, watching the video of the acoustic and thinking like, this is going to be amazing. But yeah, the way um, the process that we had when we were the film directors a few years back was, we you know, we would tell anybody who was interested in doing it, come to a couple of rehearsals. And we had rehearsals whenever it was possible between the games, which <laughs> was really tough at times because the schedule was so packed, especially in the beginning. And, you know, our, our general rule was back then was, hey, you come to a couple of rehearsals and and uh you know when the opportunity comes we'll definitely get you in there and uh that was we, we just want to uh wanted to uh establish some uh or you know, have somebody who's interested in to show some real serious just because it does take dedication and it does take time you know to be there at all the whole matches so and then anybody who i'm I'm always at least myself i'm always been open to you know anybody who's le- willing to learn i'm i'm always going to uh Help in any way I can. So that's how it's happened in the past, and you know, I'm not sure exactly how it is now with with, with uh, but I I know that we're all open to help each other out. Just dedication is definitely something that is uh,
0: uh asked. So take us through that first season. We know that you guys had the drum chants in parking lots. You had been working extensively to get ready for our first run of games. So obviously the 3252 is well established now, but prior to Thirty-two, fifty-two, being a global presence or at least a nationwide supporter presence. What was it like helping create that heartbeat season one? What were some of the setbacks and struggles and successes y'all had?
3: Season one was very interesting. You know, it was everything was fresh and new, and everybody was really excited, and uh, it was a lot of fun to be honest with you, especially with the team doing as, as well as they did. Uh, I mean, it was. I, I can. I still get chills thinking about season one because it was. It was amazing. Like every group, you know, you go through your trials and tribulations, but you know, we overcome it, and uh, you know, we stay positive, and it's, you know, and um, it's all about support. It's not about any one of us as an individual. It's really as a group as a whole. You know, when we watch the, the or the replays on TV because we're there a lot, and you hear the group sound in unison. It sounds really good when everybody sounds together. You know, but so you have to learn to. Um, to adapt a lot because you, you know as a group sometimes you tend to rush and sometimes have, it's better to drop out and then get back in and you just have to pay attention a lot and it takes coordination it's not as easy as just going and drumming you know it's, uh, it takes definitely coordination and, and listening and as all as playing so it's, yeah there's not uh, been, exactly
0: a click track that you guys are following when you're doing those chants it all has to be somewhat organic right
3: right it takes a lot of eye contact uh, looking at each other uh um, looking at the capitals uh looking at that Walter is a director, we we also have to, I try to keep up, we all try to help, you know, in any way we can, but it's definitely not about going and playing as loud as you can and overpowering, it's definitely playing and together as a unit, because it's not just about, like I said, about one individual, it's being, and also about not being, not overpowering the chance, because we're there to complement each other and we're there to complement the chance. We definitely don't want to sound louder than them, because then everything gets lost, you know, it's, it's all a group effort. And it's got to be uh, cohesive. So
0: what are some of your favorite chants? Are there some that are more difficult to play than others? Are there some chants that you're like, oh, gosh, not this one? Like, wh- what is it like as far as your-, your preference or the technical difficulty of some of those chants?
3: I think we keep them fairly basic. One of my favorite ones is Alex I think because of the intro, that like a right, left, right, right, left, left. It's a very simple drum. It starts off with that on the on the rim and it's uh one that I enjoy a lot. Of course the energy of uh jump for alley football club is, is amazing. Going back to one of the earliest uh chants that still really I love is "Ali football club. just it's something basic but it just seems to roll really well and it's always a uh, one that I really like. So I just love enthusiasm and uh what gets people going the, the most is what really gets me excited. about uh, the chants. Well,
0: some of those chants have tempo changes you know, some of them, you know, especially for the snare work, gets fairly intricate for some of them. Are there any of them that are a little challenging or frustrating? Or for a musician of your skill, is it all pretty simple?
3: I think I like, I like to keep it basic because, as I mentioned, we're all different uh, skill levels. And I think that, you know, you really can't tell the individual parts, you know, when you hear it in the big picture. So I think, you know, keeping it as basic as possible seems to work. I'm always open to make it a little different. And if anybody has ideas, I'm open to change it up. Um, so I think uh, it's not—it's not too. I don't think it's very difficult. I think we keep it pretty, pretty basic. I think I keeping
1: it basic makes sense too, if you want the entire stadium to participate. So right. it has to be basic but impactful and powerful. And I think the 3252 and the drum one has done a good job of being able to do that, which is why it's become notable for MLS fans around the country. One of the examples, we had a interview last week from Austin and, you know, he wasn't shy about saying that LAFC was a, one of the examples and the supporter section of the drumline was one of the things that he touted as a good example to follow to make sure that there's an established culture where not only does the supporter section participate but the entire stadium is able to participate so keeping it simple is not a bad thing I think it's it's being able to have everyone embrace what you all are doing.
3: Right we all come from different backgrounds as well some of us come with from the baja background and that's a lot of uh, Latin American influenced drumming uh, some of us got samba rhythms and uh, you know and then some of us come from a drumline background uh, like myself and a couple of other ones and some of us even from some drum corps experience, uh, so it's a very diverse group. But it's about sounding, I think, best uh, as a unit. And uh, I have no problem with playing simpler parts you know, for the better of the group. Or and at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm open to uh, helping players grow in the process. That's what it's about. I think, at the end of the day, helping each other out and uh, you know making it sound best uh, because we're not there to be a star or sound you know the best out of anybody. We're there to sound best, you know.
0: So season one draws to a close. You help be an integral part in the creation of the 3252. Everything is gearing and ramping up for our second season. And that's when life threw you a pretty tough curveball. So take us through that moment and what it took to get yourself back in the stands. I, I know it's it's probably an emotional subject to touch on, but since we're on the other side of it now and things are, are much brighter, take us through the perseverance, the accident itself, and what it took for you to recover.
3: Yes, uh, February, two years ago, 2019, I went through a very serious accident. Basically, it's my first day at the job and I was in an accident, woke up on the floor, looking up at a ceiling and at first I, I couldn't hear anything and little by little my vision came back and you know i looked to my left there's blood all over the floor and i couldn't move and i my first thought because <laughs> it's crazy my first thought of anything was is what if i can't drum again that's how much i love music and i uh, then started thinking to myself what if i can't walk again and it was a moment where i didn't know if i was paralyzed i didn't know if i was walking in um but yeah i wound up getting into the hospital i fracturing my back pretty bad. I couldn't walk for months. I was uh, uh, in a rehab home for about three and a half months, but uh, what helped me a lot was the support of uh, everybody. I mean, I (laughs) had my friends from, my family members from Dexco Originals, their family uh, at the hospital there with me, giving me support. I mean, the whole time while I was in rehab, I had the support of not just the Expos, to 52, the 3252, the LAFC staff, my family, my friends. I, I received a lot of support that helped me and um, motivated me to be able to uh, walk again. Without the support of everybody, I can say, and I'm forever grateful for that because without the support, I who, who knows if I'd be walking or standing right now. Uh, it really helped me every single day to get better. And uh, it changed my life uh, in, in the sense that in, well not just in one sense in, in many ways uh they do appreciate everything and everybody and and every day so much more so i'm still dealing with some uh some issues but i'm a lot better and just so grateful so uh that was uh something that was very unexpected but in in, in the sense that physically but also um i never expected to receive the beautiful support that i received from everybody so that was uh something that i will forever you know keep in my heart and uh just really appreciate whatever what happened um the support i mean i got for the opening match i was wheeled into onto the game it was crazy and just i'll never forget all the love that i received from everybody It just really helped me to keep going
2: how soon after your accident were you able to get back into the stands and be able to participate on the drum line again
3: i mean wow i will i came back but it was at a limited capacity um my probably try to come back a little too early but you know I just kept myself I was very careful I had to wear an upper body brace for about four months but I honestly wasn't able to really like I don't think it was maybe about until five months later that I was really able to try but it definitely took a while I and mean, even that season I, I didn't come back to full capacity it was very limited what I could do that that whole season last season not being there helped me to heal and forced me to uh, not be able to be as active as I'd like to be because I'm used to being very active and I was it took a lot of patience but I stayed positive and the support that I received kept me positive so I definitely didn't come back a full a full capacity that's even it's, it's still impacting me like I said to this day so but I just try to always look at the positive side of it and and uh, look at the fact that I'm standing and walking and and able to drum uh, even at, a, at a capacity
0: what was that first game like that first trip back to the bank after your recovery what were the emotions of that moment
3: well my first trip back was actually like within i think a month after the accident but i was in a wheelchair like i said and just to be there to be able to make it an opening match meant a lot to me but to like once my brace my upper body came uh brace excuse me came off and i was able to at least stand in front of a drum and even if it was to play for a few minutes, that uh, that was amazing. It's not the same when you're watching it from home, let me tell you. And, and for me, that was so tough to be able to watch the games from the rehab facility. Uh, it was really tough to watch it from there because I would hear the drums and I just wanted to be there with everybody. And I and, know and had a chance and, the, and, uh, and I just wanted to be there with everybody. And I remember hearing a few of the, the chants. I was like, wait, I never heard that one. I was just like, oh, I can't wait to get back. So it was very tough, but I feel like, like I said, I had a lot of support. I can't even say how much support I had. It was amazing. I'm trying not to get emotional because it was really something I never expected and never would have had. So much love to everybody from the 30 to 52 and from the Expos that gave me um, a lot of support.
0: Well, to move from one emotional subject to the next, we know that after your season in which you recovered and were once again able to rejoin the drum line, we then fall into the pandemic. The pandemic has caused so much tragedy throughout the world and certainly within the 3252 community. And one of the most notable members that we have lost and certainly one of the first to really resonate across the LAFC community was losing a member of our drum line and our drum corps. Can you take us through your personal relationship and experiences that you had in being a leader, and what it was like to lose a member of the drug corps uh, in army.
3: was there from day one. I remember he, he he was always just a great guy, and, and he was always uh, the first guy to give somebody a stick to come and you know and drum with him at, at the games. He was he was um, somebody that uh, will forever be missed, and will forever. Be there with us. It was right before the beginning of last season, and it was very unexpected. And so much love to him and his family. You know, they're they're there every match. And you know, going back to that video that I said that I first time I, I saw or heard the acoustics of drums in the stadium was Astic drums, and and I got I got chills the first time I saw that video, and I was like, oh wow, it's gonna be so amazing in there. And uh, our drummers are such an integral part of our um, 3252 drums. And uh, Jaime, Jaime was very, very, uh, very key, and he's very loved, you know. So we're definitely miss him very much, and uh, you know he's always there with us. Uh, his memory will always be there with us, and uh, it's very, it's very tragic, you know. And I will always miss him for sure. He was a great guy. Love them very much.
2: Yeah, you, know, you mentioned about how the Aztec drummers are so integral to the drum line and to the heartbeat of the 3252. Can you talk a little bit about the specific equipment and instruments that they use? That What is that unique tone that you hear coming out of the North End?
3: I'm not sure if I'm the appropriate person to discuss actually about the drums since I'm not very familiar uh, with it. But, wow, those guys bring out a lot to our group. And, uh, you know, the dance and and the uh, the drumming, the indigenous uh, drumming uh, that they do is it's special. I mean it's my part of my Aztec roots and my being Mexican American and uh, something that I've embraced since I was a child and I've always gravitated every time that I've, I've been to uh, an event where there's been um, Aztec or dance and drummers there, but I don't feel very uh familiar with it in depth to be able to, to discuss uh the type of drums that that mm, and style. But it's uh, we're very much embracing and they're an integral part of a group.
0: We do know that you are not only a musician, but of course, a music lover as well, too. So why don't you take us through, you know, from a drumming perspective, you know, what are some of your favorite musical styles to listen to some of your favorite artists, some of your favorite drummers? Uh, why don't we deep dive a little bit into your musical likes and dislikes and what motivates you, um, you know, through the. The medium of percussion
3: where to begin i grew up listening to like i said a lot of madden music growing up but uh, through my mother always playing it and but when i was a young teenager punk rock was a big part of my life and playing the punk rock bands was something that we did you know uh in uh especially in, in san Diego valley area we grew up playing the punk rock bands and and that uh and i was also in, in drama at the time so i was also in the jazz band i was always playing shows we were always playing shows and fell in love with uh, other types of music, particularly soul music and reggae music, uh early on, but didn't really, I guess, pursue uh, more of that until I guess my early twenties and I never looked back. Yeah, I'm a big fan of soul music, whether it's Latin music, Latin soul or Boogaloo or funky type of soul. I just love soul music and other kinds of stuff. Like I said, Latin music. I go like, Nintendo to seek more rare music versus a lot of the common stuff. Um as we spoke uh, other day about records a little bit uh i I love records and and looking for them so i'm always uh looking for different types of music but particularly a lot of uh reggae a lot of soul um, music uh from not just the states from all over the world um different kinds of stuff are
0: there any drummers that you know you look up to as inspirations into your own particular style or who are some of your favorite drummers
3: one of my all-time favorite drummers is gene krupa who uh one of the, I guess he's considered them well, he's considered the godfather of the modern drum set, played with Benny Goodman and a lot of the big Bandera drummers back in the day. But I love uh, Gene Krupa. Um, Mitch Mitchell was one of my favorite drummers growing up from Jimi Hendrix experience. John were from The Doors was one of my favorite drummers growing up. But honestly, the, like the last 10, 15 years, I've looked more on the Latin side to, for more inspiration. Drummers like Willie Bobo, Fred Barreto, uh, Mongo Santa Maria become like my favorite like drummers. Um, some of them, so I look for a lot of their music and Latin rhythms. I fell in love with, and uh, of course, uh, so Motown and a lot of the rare soul and those kind of drummers um, don't don't get a lot of credit as well. So always looking for uh, good rhythms as well.
1: Going back to the season and some of the game day experiences. Uh did you ever get a chance to do actual away games and taking drums with you
3: before the injury? Yeah, I, I got I went to the first match in Seattle um and I got to drum on that one. Some of our supporters took drums. One of we had a supporter who lived on in Seattle at the time. So he was able to bring some drums and I got to drum and first season also in Portland, which was awesome. Um the first Carson match <laughs> We actually snuck uh, a few drums in there. I think we we're only supposed to take one and I kind of snuck in with my snare behind the big drum. So uh, the first Carson <laughs> the first Carson match is one that, uh, you know, we didn't get the the W on that one, but wow, that, the energy that we brought, that's something that was unreal. We never stopped chanting even even when we got that, uh, the defeat. We, we just kept going and I'll never forget that one. The first San Jose match, <laughs> I'll never forget that one. So there's been some memorable ones for sure.
0: What do you think of that giant drum they have in San Jose? I
3: actually don't really know about it. Uh, tell me about it. Maybe you can. Oh, I, they, have this,
0: they have this giant, like, I mean, it's basically a bass drum, you know, that's like maybe 15 feet across. And then there's a guy with just a big giant mallet banging on it um, that they use to try and drive their supporters section. And I remember on our away day in which we absolutely took over San Jose, the guy who was attempting to bang that drum was trying to drown us out. And he ended up just giving up because he couldn't even hear himself over us. But they have this massive, and it's even mic'd up on top of that as well, too, which is even more ironic, I realize. But it's this, and they claim it's like the largest drum in the United States or something like that. But it's this huge, huge drum with this giant, like four foot, mallet that they bang on
3: well whatever they got to do but uh, i mean i don't know if it's really going to help when we go out there because when we go to san jose we go strong so but i guess whatever uh their boat you know
2: <laughs> can you uh tell us a little bit about the black and gold vinyl club how it started what you guys do and what you're all about
3: sure black and gold vinyl club we began well, last year gary was also an post myself and uh woolly from empire boys it was basically began because we love music and particularly on vinyl records and uh we felt that there was i don't want to say that there was a void but we felt that we could through our love our music we could find a, a way to uh, show our love for lafc so we began instagram page and began sharing music through that last year and now we have our discord page we have the link on our on our bio, and anybody who'd like to join in and uh, discuss music and share, you know, anything from their new records they got to, you know, something coming up or anything music related. So you're welcome, and much love, and to everybody who has been supporting us. It's been a lot of fun so far, and you know, we've been coming up with stickers and we've got upcoming pins and some other stuff that we got cooking. But basically, it's our, our love for music and a way to share it amongst the community. It's been, we love it uh, so far. It's been great. We've received a positive uh, uh, feedback.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sitting about eight inches away from my record player, and my vinyl collection is right next to me here.
3: Look, right there for me. I mean, it's, it's right next to me. I, drums and records are a huge part of my life. And, you know, I get home from my day, I put on a record. I, I start my day, I'll throw on the record. and... Just we're, we're crazy about records and vinyl music, really. So it's a great way to think to express it amongst the community by sharing it.
0: It has a sound that is just so different from anything you get in any other form and i absolutely love it my selection is not as formidable as yours but it's fairly well curated to you know i don't like to collect albums that i would never listen to so i have a pretty firm rule that if i'm going to own it i'm going to use it right so i only have albums that i listen to but uh yeah i have Mm -hmm. about 300 or 400 or so um so i mean it's uh It's it's an expensive, but very, very beautiful passion. And I'm super excited about Black and Gold Vinyl Club. You sent me that Discord link. And uh, I have to admit my age here a little bit. I had to figure out what Discord was. (laughs) Download it so that I could join you guys. But uh, I'm excited to pop in that chat and get going.
3: Yes, it's actually a... (laughs) I just found out recently myself um, about it, so but I like it because it, it's a it's a good way to uh, to share beyond the Instagram page, you know, thinking a little further, you know. And something that I, from day one, uh, from the first uh, away match for us, I mean, I went record shopping on that trip. I remember I I had a friend who lives in over in uh, Colorado, and I took an extended flight. I took a pit stop and did some record shopping on the way to Seattle. So every on away days, I look at it as an opportunity to do some record digging as well and also to play records at events out there too. Like I got to play records in Washington right before the night before that first away match. And I've gotten the chance to play records at other places during away uh, events. So, or excuse me, during the weekends of away matches. So that's been a lot of fun as well to share records and play records with other people in other cities.
1: With this year slowly opening up at the bank and throughout the country, what, what is your outlook for, for yourself? For the rest of the drum the drummers in the 322 at home and potentially away
3: days right now we're limited to only about 20 drummers because the COVID restrictions at home matches I know that they're still figuring out a way and I'm not really sure if I'm in the position also to speak about away matches coordination but I know that as far as the drum line I mean I we hope that we can bring more members in as restrictions loosen up a little bit because right now we're only limited 20 drummers but we're happy that uh, we can be there because it could be not being there. So we're, we're taking it um, in strides.
1: Speaking of which, how many drummers pre-COVID would be in the drumming section?
3: I don't have a specific number, but if I can guess, I want to say uh, around 40 more or less. Yeah, around 40 more or less is what I would guess. But I don't have a specific number or list in front of me to tell you. But right now we're at about, we're at about half capacity. Can't, we're looking forward to everybody being back.
0: Well, we thank you so much for joining us this evening. You've been very gracious with your time. And I know we've touched on a lot of subjects, uh, some more fun to speak about than others. And we sincerely appreciate your candor and your time this evening. We do have one final question for you before we wrap up tonight's episode. It's a question we ask every guest. It's the name of the show. It's a term that's very firmly defined within the black and gold community. But we all seem to find our own interpretations of it. And that, Jose, is what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you?
3: Shoulder to shoulder means family, my family lives far away from me and uh, to have uh, joined this LAFC family from day one and and for everybody to be there for each other. That's what it means to me. When you're down, you, you pick each other up like a family does and and it's really become an extended family. To, to me, I have a lot of love and respect for everybody in the 3252. So it definitely means being there close together every match and and also as a community.
0: Beautiful. Well, well, thank you for that. One of these days, we'll have to get together and uh, spin some vinyls together. You can play me some of that uh, you know, jazz, soul, reggae, and uh, I'll bring over some thrash metal. We'll have a good time. Yeah, we're in. Let's do it. All righty. Well, that's going to call it a show for today. We would once again like to very sincerely thank our guest for showing. Uh, He is at soul underscore Libre on your social media. Please give him a follow. We sincerely thank you once again for showing again, Expo Original, a co-founder of the 3252 Drumline and one of the admins of the Black and Gold Vinyl Club. You can follow the 3252 Drumline at... Heartbeat of Los Angeles on their social media platforms as well too. So thank you so much for joining us on behalf of our guest, Mr. Jose rendon of course my co-host Christian Aparicio, Chris Signs, and myself, Jonathan, and of course the legend himself, sound engineer Wilton. We would like to thank you all for listening to episode ninety of Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. We will catch you guys next week to regale our Houston exploits. And with that. Take us home sticks
3: showed up to showed up together get this our culture from the force up a supernova stay flying at FC door sum hey shopping down the nickies korea town lady keep us so oh mommy about to drop her fit. they won't need to stop but i ain't come to my house I defend that bank.